0: So we've been doing a brief series on the subject, the topic of temptation, over the last few weeks. And the reason that we decided to, to think together as a church about temptation is because we need to think about how it drives. What are the motivating things behind temptation? How does it operate? How do we fight it? Uh, what happens if we don't fight against temptation? The idea is that if we, if we can understand something of how temptation works... We'll be more aware of how it is that we can fight against it, knowing it's half the battle, right? No one should think that they are free from the temptation to sin. We all have this in common, everybody in this room. And so if this is something that we all face together, it seems fitting and appropriate for us to spend some time together to think about it. And the first week in the series, we defined temptation, and we leaned on John Owen's definition, and we said this. temptation is Any thing, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the mind and heart of a person away from obedience to God towards sin in any way. I think we've got a slide with that on there. Thumbs up? It's coming. Let me just read it for us again. Any thing, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the mind and the heart of a person from obedience to God towards sin in any degree. And so that's the definition that we stole from John Owen in week one, and that we've been building on that. And so then in the second week, we heard about the role that the conscience plays in temptation, uh, and the idea of Christian freedom. And then last week, we heard about how we are to battle against the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. One thing that we have to understand that is... Basic to Christianity uh, is this. Christianity is a supernatural religion. Christianity is a supernatural religion. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. We believe that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood alone in temptation, but against powers, principalities, spirits of the power of the air. We can't understand Christianity at a very basic level without acknowledging that there is more to reality that we cannot perceive with our normal five senses. I really want to press into this idea because this is very important for us to understand right off the bat because this is not how we typically think this, this day and age. But if we're going to fight temptation, we have to know that there is a spiritual realm and that Satan is real, a real personal being. If you're a member of Trinity, if you've ever been to a Connections class, you'll know this because we read the Statement of Faith for Trinity. And in the Statement of Faith, we have a little article in there that talks about Satan, who he is, and it says this, we believe that Satan is a personal being. He is the enemy of God, the accuser, the tempter of God's people, and the deceiver of all men. Christians should not fear Satan, but resist him knowing that he is God's defeated enemy, not equal, and destined, along with all those who follow him, to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. This is what Trinity believes about Satan. Now, Here's what we need to know this morning. To fight temptation, we must be aware of how Satan works against us, how he fans the flames of our flesh, how he deceives us into sinning. We shouldn't be ignorant of how Satan works against us. We don't want to be outwitted or outsmarted or bewitched or bewildered in any way by Satan. So here's what I'm going to ask of you. During the course of this time and this sermon, I would ask you to take stock of yourself. How have you experienced the temptations of the devil? I want us to understand the specific ways in which Satan might be working in subtle ways, but effective ways in your life, on a regular basis. We need to know this because, as we read in the Statement of Faith, those who fully embrace their flesh, that are fully deceived, that are fully following Satan headlong, will follow him into the eternal lake of fire. Our big idea this morning is this. Resist Satan's temptation to feed your flesh by feasting on the word. Resist Satan's temptation to feed your flesh by feasting on the word. Praise God, Satan is a defeated enemy and we can resist him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a moment and ask for God's help to do that even now. Would you please take a moment, just pray silently for everyone who's around you and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we know that even now there are forces at work here among us. We praise you that your spirit resides in us and among us as your people. So we just ask for his help this morning. As the word of your kingdom goes forward and it's sown into people's hearts, we pray that you would help us understand it so that the evil one would not come and snatch it away from us, help us to value your words, the words of your mouth, more than even our daily portion of food. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What I want to do this morning is set up the context of these four verses, sort of explain them, we'll walk through it, uh, answer a few questions about the text, and then I want to slow down a little bit. And then look at the specific ways that Satan is tempting Jesus, because I think we have a lot to learn by just slowing down and making some observations of the text, and then we can just learn how Satan works so that we're not ignorant of his devices. Are we together? Our text this morning is in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the first four verses of Matthew 4. Matthew wrote in part to help a Jewish audience understand who Jesus is. Jesus is that long-promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. He is the true Son of God, who is obedient to God in a way that Israel never was. In the Old Testament, God called Israel his Son. Are you aware of that? They were supposed to help a fallen world have some understanding of who it was that God was. They were supposed to image-bear God to the other nations. But Israel failed in doing that. You know the saying, it's supposed to be like father, like son. Israel failed. They were not like their father. In fact, in some ways, they failed even more than the nations that surrounded them. I think that's the the point of the book of Judges, at least in part. But what Matthew does from the very beginning of his gospel is he helps us understand that Jesus is going to be that son of God that Israel failed to be. In Matthew 2.15, he connects Israel with Jesus. Maybe you remember what happens there. King Herod is out to catch Jesus. He wants to kill him as a young child. But an angel comes to Mary and Joseph and uh, they get a message that they need to flee so that they can preserve the life of their child. And so they go to Egypt. Now in Matthew, he cites that scripture from Hosea in the Old Testament where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Speaking of Israel there, but Matthew does something very interesting. He connects it with Jesus. He's saying Jesus fulfills that statement that Hosea said about Egypt coming out of Egypt, about Israel coming out of Egypt. So Matthew wants us to know right off the bat that Jesus is filling out the meaning of Israel's exodus, and he's filling out the identity of who Israel was meant to be. And then as we continue in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, if you have your Bible open there, it's right before the passage that we're in this morning. You see, it's where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, what happens there? The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and the voice of God the Father is heard audibly saying, Behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here again, making the point, Jesus is going to be that Son of God that Israel could not B, that brings us to the first four verses of Matthew 4. Now, Jesus has been led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he's tempted in three different ways, and we've split them up into three different sermons, and so we're just going to focus on that first temptation this morning. Next week, we'll talk about the second one, but let me just read these four verses again so that they're fresh in our minds. Matthew four four one uh, 1 through 4 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first question that comes to my mind when I read this is, Who's leading Jesus to be tempted? God, the Holy Spirit, is leading Jesus into temptation. How does this work? Because we know that in the book of James it says God does not tempt anyone. Well, if we slow down and read carefully, you notice that it's not God who is doing the tempting. Uh, Satan is doing the tempting. And it's very clear in verse 3. He's called the tempter. You see it very clearly there in verse 3, Satan, the the devil, is the tempter. And it's interesting, the word that's used there for the word tempt also can mean test or prove. It's translated safely into test or prove, also temptation. So there's two different things going on here, I want to suggest. There's tempting on the part of God, or testing on the part of God, but tempting on the part of Satan. God is directing Jesus to face testing or to prove his faith, but the devil is tempting Jesus. Two different things going on here. The Holy Spirit is guiding Jesus into the wilderness for a time of intense testing because this is the question that has to be answered. If this is the Son of God, what kind of Son of God is he going to be? Will he be faithful? Will he be faithful and obedient to his Father in the wilderness? Will he be more faithful than Israel was as his son? Will he grumble against God like they did in in the wilderness? Or will he trust God to order and provide all that he needs? Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And here again are more connections with, with Israel. Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he received the law of God. And of course Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years before they got to enter into the promised land. If you remember, the Israelites were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. But even there, after a while, out there in the wilderness, they're like, this isn't really all that good, God. Why would you lead us out here? There's no food. We don't have any reliable source of food. We should go back to Egypt. At the very least, we had a reliable source of food there. They're discontent with what God has provided for them. He's brought them out of Egypt. They want to go back in. And that discontentment stirs up grumbling in them but just before they entered into the promised land Moses reminds them of what they've been through and what God has done for them we read it in Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 through 3 and I want to read this it's very important for us to know this let me just read this for us Deuteronomy 8 1 to 3 says this the whole commandment that I command you should today shall be you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply And go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to gave to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here we have Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tested so that the Father would know what was in his heart. Would he obey God's commandments or not? And even there, in the midst of Israel's wandering, God did provide for them. They had food provided for them in the form of manna. But he wanted them to know that they needed to rely on him alone, that God was good, that God was sovereign, God was going to provide for his people out there in the wilderness. He wanted them to listen to God, to obey God, don't get distracted by your flesh. But they were discontent, they grumbled. So after fasting for 40 days, being physically weak now, the tempter approaches Jesus. And what does he say? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The word for if here could safely be translated into since as well. So it very well could say, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into loaves of bread. Notice that the devil comes at him right off the bat with truth. Since you are the Son of God, why should you be out here suffering without food? This doesn't make sense to me, Jesus. You have the power within yourself to provide for your own needs. You don't need to rely on your Father. Take care of yourself. You do you, Jesus. What does Jesus say? Not today, Satan. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, what I just read for you he quotes it in order to illustrate that he was going to trust God to provide everything he needed in a way that Israel did not. If Jesus turned those stones into bread, he would not have been learning obedience to the Father through suffering. He would be rebelling against his own mission. You see, selflessness was central to what Jesus even came to do. And if he turned stones into bread instead of trusting God to provide for him, he might have been temporarily satisfied, but he would have been an eternal failure. See, Jesus was content with what God had provided for him, and that's what fasting is designed to do. Fasting is a way for you to let go of a particular desire in order to get a greater fulfillment. Jesus didn't desire bread more than he desired trusting and obeying God. It's not that bread is bad, obviously, it's just that bread is insufficient, in order to be fully alive in the way that God intends for us, we need God's word. So, unlike Israel, who did not trust God to provide for them in the, in the wilderness, Jesus went into the wilderness and he passed the test. He didn't obey his appetite, he obeyed his father. So before we talk about the devices of Satan, we really need to know that Satan is a defeated enemy. And he's defeated because Jesus defeated him. He didn't obey his own selfish desires. He didn't obey his own selfish needs. He didn't let Satan cause him to stumble. Listen, this is your hope. Please hear this carefully. Your hope as a Christian is not built on your ability to perfectly deny yourself or withstand the powers of your appetite or the deceptions of the devil. Your only hope is built on the fact that Jesus did. Can I get an amen? Until that fact settles into your heart, you're going to be trusting in yourself, you will grow weary. You'll give up because you're going to fail. Remember, Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father is yours if you have been united by faith with him. So when God the Father says to the Son, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, if you are in Christ, that is true of you. You must know this. Your obedience is propelled from Jesus' perfection. Jesus did something that we cannot perfectly do. He was sinless, but he also modeled for us something that we do need to do, which is obey our Father. Obedience to our Father is something that we should be doing, and Jesus is a model for us, even here in Matthew 4, for our own temptations. So how did Jesus fight against the temptation of Satan? With the word of God. He fights the temptation of Satan with the word of God. So in each of these three temptations that are in this passage here in four, Jesus responds to Satan with scripture. And we're going to talk more about this next week. But take note of the fact, right off the bat, that Jesus is a man of scripture. He has a very high view of the Old Testament. Do you notice this? He quotes the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and he says, It is written... And he says that those are words that proceed out of the mouth of God. So Jesus understands this principle foundational to Christianity. This, when scripture speaks, God speaks. When scripture speaks, God speaks. This is what Jesus is telling us here. He fights temptation with the power of the words which come from the mouth of God as inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is how we, the Spirit helps us to fight temptation, through his words that he gives to us through the Bible. Satan approached Jesus and he tempted him by appealing to his flesh, because that's normally how it works. Think Adam and Eve, and every other human since then. Uh, you, you go to the flesh and you just fan the flames. That's, that's, Satan's, that's Satan's strategy. Our flesh, our appetites, our desires are setting sin on fire, and Satan's just coming along to fan the flames. But I love how one Puritan author speaks of the temptation of Jesus here. He says that when Satan came upon Jesus, the devil's fire fell upon wet wood and did not set ablaze. There is no part of Jesus that desired to act contrary to his father's will. So, Jesus was tempted uh, externally. He was enticed by Satan. But there was nothing in him that desired anything sinful internally. But we're different, okay? We're different from Jesus in that respect. We're more like Israel. We battle against our flesh daily, and Satan is there to come along and fan the flames of our sin with temptation. So let's look closely at the way that Satan tempts Jesus and the way that Satan uh, is resisted by Jesus so that we can learn from Jesus how to fight Satan's temptation. Notice first that Satan attacked when Jesus was physically exhausted. Satan attacked Jesus when he was physically exhausted. Unfortunately, the rhythms of our lives in this day and age always encourage us to be busy. Busy or distracted, one of the two. To be productive or at the very least be distracted so that we forget that we're not being productive. And all of our activity, all our busyness, makes it very difficult for us to keep our shield of faith lifted up. We let it drop. And then we get hit with the fiery darts of temptation. Do you find that true to be, be true of you? Uh, tiredness, does that cause you to be more vulnerable to temptation? I can tell you that for me, I've just been through the stresses of moving. Uh, and it's a whirlwind of activity. Um, for about 40 days, coincidentally, that's not part of the text. <laughs> just finding a new house, selling our old house, finding a new house, saying goodbye to our old house. Uh, moving into the new one and living out of boxes. It's been emotionally and physically draining and exhausting. I'm not complaining, but I am being transparent with you. And whenever I'm weary like that, I am tempted to let things slip. Anger, frustration can stop to pop up in my my heart and in my mind. Selfishness and pride and irritability. Even a lack of self-control when it comes to the choices of food that I make. I was talking to Elle before the sermon, and she said that Doritos are her illustration of the nature of sin. And I totally agree with that. My wife knows that like when we were in the process of moving, I'm like, I don't know, just go get a bag of Doritos. That's all we need. <laughs> Is this a device that Satan might be using with you? How do we fight temptation when we are at our weakness? Uh, it might just be that you need to do what you can to avoid physical exhaustion. Maybe you find that adjusting your sleep patterns, adjusting your diet, taking an emotional stock of where you're at, or exercising might actually help you spiritually. It might shore up your spiritual strength. But in some cases, I understand that's not possible. And so what do we do in times like those? Well, we must be vigilant against sin. It is written, Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Isaiah 40, verse 31 But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice also that Satan attacked Jesus directly following a high point in his life. Satan attacked Jesus directly following a high point in his life. I just mentioned it earlier at the end of Matthew 3. Jesus was just baptized. And he heard the God the Father audibly pronounced him, his beloved son, with whom he is well pleased. And yet here he is very shortly thereafter in the throes of temptation. And in the same way that that exhaustion can cause us to let our shield droop, having a spiritual high can also cause us to lose our vigilance spiritually. We just had uh, the youth camp like six weeks ago. Uh, and... If you've been to a youth camp, you know that that is, in and of itself, a a spiritual high. Uh, You go there and you get to have a lot of spiritual conversations. You spend so much time in devotions, singing, hearing lessons. And you come back, and you better believe that some of these teens were tempted after coming back from that spiritual high. And it's not just true of teens. You know this is true of adults as well. How many of us are tempted into sin when we think that we're doing our best and sort of lose track of where we're at, lose track of our vigilance. It is written, First 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then, when you do succumb to temptation and you do sin, don't despair, run back to Jesus. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we might receive mercy and find grace to find help in time of need. Notice also that Satan wanted Jesus to think that he deserved to sin. Satan wanted Jesus to think that he deserved to sin. He said, since you're the son of God. So notice that right off the bat he tries to make sin seem reasonable. After all, you're the son of God. You have the ability to do this. You have authority over all creation. You created these stones. You you can recreate them as bread. That would be no problem for you. Why are you out here starving? Well, friends, are there times in your life when you think that you deserve to sin a little? You might think, well, it, it's entirely reasonable to gossip about this particular situation. I mean, who wouldn't? My sin of gossip is not nearly as bad as the sin that I perceive this other person has done. Or if you knew the way that this person treated me, you'd be like, oh, okay, your gossip's okay. <sighs> Ephesians 4.29, it is written, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that I might give grace to those who hear. Or maybe you've just been really actually doing Really well. Maybe you've been killing sin in one area of your life and you're feeling pretty energized by that and you're like, you know what? I think I can let my guard down in a different area. Maybe as a reward, I can indulge the flesh a little bit. Man, I've been serving at church. I've been a great wife. I've been a great mother, taking care of the kids, doing what I'm supposed to do. I deserve a little me time. And so when I get my me time, I'm going to let my self-control down a little bit and I'm going to be taking in entertainment that's probably not ideal for me. Proverbs twenty-five, eighteen: A person without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. You don't deserve to let your self-control go. That's dangerous. Notice also that Satan wanted Jesus to think that small disobedience was no big deal. Small disobedience is no big deal. Picture a wife who's getting frustrated because her spouse is not giving her the attention that she believes that she is due, and a guy at the gym comes up to her, makes a comment, he gives her a, a nice compliment and now she 's had this desire to be acknowledged to be affirmed, which is not in and of itself a bad desire right she 's had that desire met outside of the context of her marriage, uh, but she doesn 't think there's anything there's no it 's not a big deal like it was just it 's not a big deal i 'm How can you say that I'm going about things the wrong way? I'm human, and I need to be loved, just like everybody else does. But maybe it leads to more than this. Small sins slide into the soul, and they grow slowly, they grow subtly, until all of their power has such a stronghold in us that we're deceived to the point that we've lost track of what good and evil actually are. So surely she did not go into this planning on committing adultery. But could it have led there? And could it have started with something as simple as that? I know the Bible doesn't say neglect gathering together, someone might say. But it's my one day off. And I really need this time to just recharge and rest. So it's really no big deal that I don't go to church. But over time, that small disobedience can turn into not trusting the word of God. And maybe that turns into mocking the word of God. And maybe that turns into trusting your own opinions over the word of God. Don't be fooled into thinking that small disobedience is no big deal. Jesus learned obedience in small things. I think that's what's happening here in Matthew 4. Jesus is learning obedience in small things, which led to obedience in bigger things for him. Because think about it. in, in In the wilderness, Satan says there that if you're the son of God, stop fasting and feed yourself. Later on in Jesus' life, perhaps you'll remember this. When he's hanging on the cross, the people are standing there mocking him and saying, if you're the son of God, come down off that cross. Temptation's surely much stronger there, but he learned obedience, Hebrews says. Perhaps this is one way that he did it here in the small things. Small obedience can bring about stronger obedience when circumstances get increasingly difficult in your life. It is written, Romans thirteen, fourteen, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It is written also, first Peter two, eleven, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Notice also in this temptation that Satan wanted Jesus to doubt his father's goodness. Satan wanted Jesus to doubt his father's goodness. After all, what father, when his son asks him for bread, gives him stones? Come on, Jesus. If God was really good and if he was really loving, would he have you out here starving like this? This is like the temptation in the Garden of Eden, is it not? If God is good, why would he withhold the fruit of just this one tree from you? That's a silly rule. God just wants to spoil your fun. He's, he's trying to hold back. He doesn't want you to have the good life. If you're tempted to think that God is not good all of the time, despite the appearance of your present circumstances, Satan has done his work. If you're tempted to think that God is not good all the time, Satan has done his work. Beware of any thought that makes you suspicious of God's behavior, his character, his character. Do you feast on God's word only when it's in line with what you already desire? God's word doesn't always reinforce our desires, you should know. At places in our lives, it reshapes and reorients our desires in ways that are contrary to what we might feel internally. But notice that Jesus does not use scripture to unleash his desires, he uses scripture to constrain his desires. When God's word thwarts your own desires, when it thwarts your own will, is it food for you at that point? Or do you just pass?, eh, Not that verse. That's not my daily bread. Will you trust that God knows better than you do? Will you trust that He is good? First Chronicle 16:34 says, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, and his steadfast love endures forever." It is written, Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Notice also that Satan wants Jesus to think that sin satisfies more than obedience. Satan wants Jesus to think that sin satisfies more than obedience. In the moment of temptation, it might look like sinning is actually going to be more satisfying than not sinning. That's the nature of temptation. You see, Satan, for the record, is not in the bread business. He's in the deception business. It looks like he's just trying to get Jesus to enjoy some food to meet his own physical needs, which is a reasonable thing. But in reality, he's trying to get Jesus to think that obedience to God is not satisfying. True satisfaction and delight come from a belling against God instead of living with God. This is the temptation. Surely you've experienced this same sort of temptation. Your desires rise up in you and in a quick moment you act on the bait of temptation and what does it leave in your mouth? Shame? Confusion? Loss? You bit that bait and you found out that it was covering the hook that has now snared you. This is the deceptive nature of temptation. Satan is not in the business of providing sexual pleasure through pornography. He's in the business of dulling your senses to the beauty of the sufficiency of sex within the covenant of marriage. Remember that whatever ounce of sweetness that you might be able to extract from sin is going to be followed by a gallon of bitterness and vile venom. It is written, Romans twelve nine: abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice also that Satan wanted Jesus to believe that there was no redemptive value to suffering. Satan wanted Jesus to believe that there was no redemptive value to suffering. The inference here is there's no good reason for you to have to keep yourself from enjoying something good, like bread. Bread. Why are you out here suffering like this? God wouldn't want you to go through this. Just end it now and give in to the temptation. But we must remember that sometimes obedience to God feels like discomfort. It might actually cause discomfort. So in times when you're tempted to lie in order to cover over a mistake, maybe that you've made it work that might cost you a bonus, will you trust God to care for you even though telling you Telling the truth might cost you. Will you trust God to order and provide even when it's difficult? Will we obey when it's costly? And don't forget here that the Holy Spirit is the one that led Jesus out into the wilderness. So when temptation comes, Christian, the opportunity is here for you. Will this be a test? Will you be able to prove where your allegiance lies? Will it be a temptation or a test? Will it be a temptation or a test that encourages you to becoming more and more like Christ as a test? Or will it be a temptation that leads to sin, which ultimately brings about death? It is written, 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says this, God caused us to be born again to a living hope, and in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James 1, verses 2 through 4 say this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be complete, that you might be perfect, lacking in nothing. So even in temptation, when it feels like you're suffering, will you use it as an opportunity to prove your faith, to prove your obedience, to prove your allegiance to God? Satan has a thousand ways to tempt us, to deceive us, and this is not a comprehensive, complete list by any means. But what we learn from Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is that we should resist Satan's temptation to feed our flesh in a number of ways by feasting on the word of God. We should resist Satan's temptation to feed our flesh by feasting on the Word of God. This is what I've tried to help us do as we walk through, see the devices of Satan, and maybe take a couple scripture references that you might be able to use in those moments of temptation. But it's important to note that a simple recitation or even faithless reading of scripture is not sufficient in and of itself. The Word of God is bred to us because of who Jesus is and because of our faith in Jesus. Let me just draw this together for us. The Word is bread to the Christian because the Word is Jesus and Jesus is the bread of life. Does that make sense? The Word, when it's read in faith, when we see it and we love the Word, it sustains our spiritual lives. The word, when it's read in faith, sustains our spiritual lives. Jesus says it this way in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Then he goes on in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the word is our food because Jesus is the word. Jesus is our bread of life. We read the word of God with eyes of faith and it becomes spiritual nourishment for us. God is feeding us through his word as we meet it with faith. Well, unbelieving friend, you are here and you don't believe in Jesus. You're here. I don't know who you are, but you're welcome here. You've heard the word of Jesus this morning, so the question is here for you. Would you still give in to temptation for that temporary satisfaction when Jesus stands ready to save you, to give you life more abundant, to give you eternal life at the right hand of God where there is eternal pleasure and joy forevermore? Christians, we fight, we resist temptation because we follow The true Son of God. His obedience is our obedience, and we're propelled by that. He is our King. He has a good way for us. We follow Him, we follow Him alone. Don't follow Satan into temptation. Let's follow Him alone. Let's pray.